Mess It Up podcast, where we take your mess and turn it into a message. And now, here's Biker Chick and the Bowtie Guy. Welcome to the Mess It Up podcast. I am the Bowtie Guy. And I am the Biker Chick. And this week, we have a special guest from uh, Castamonia podcast. Special guest, who are you? I am special guest Doug from the Castamonia podcast. And I guess this is some reciprocity. Uh, I had I had you on our podcast not too long ago, and that was exciting. So I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, it's great. We had uh, a lot of really good feedback from that. I had a lot of people call me and said, hey, I heard you on that Castamonia thing. That was good. So uh, we really appreciate you doing that for us. Um, just to get a couple of things out of the way here up front, uh, the word of the week this week is vindicate. And uh, uh, vindicate is to uh, to clear from blame or suspicion. And hopefully uh, your podcast, our podcast, everybody's podcast will help to clear us from all those blames, suspicions, and whatever else might be lurking. So uh, if you can use that podcast, or I mean that, that, that word of the week in uh, a sentence this week, give yourself some bonus points. If you can't, keep on trying because bonus points are the best, people. We, uh, we all want bonus points. I don't want bonus points. You don't want bonus points? I don't. Ah, bonus points are so much fun. No, they're not. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I've heard it both ways. So anyhow, um, we're going to vindicate ourselves by having Doug on. Doug, why don't you tell, um, uh, tell us just a little bit about yourself, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about your, uh, your ministry after that. But what got you where you are? Well, I am Doug, and that's a that's a big loaded question there. Uh, but I work with the Castamonia podcast now, uh, just because of uh, of a life of bad choices and some things that have really messed up my life. And so, uh, you know, I think of addiction, and I think of my sexual addiction that I've had in the past that started very early on with pornography and started with um, chat rooms, and then progressed into uh, meeting people in person and then grooming those that I worked with. And and so multiple affairs became the issue. And as a married Christian man, that's obviously not something that I wanted in my life and just couldn't find a way to, to take care of it. And so when things all came to a head, it all came to light. It was time to be dealt with. And so I started looking for avenues, uh, 12-step programs and Celebrate Recovery and, and you know, Sex Addicts Anonymous and other groups that are out there to, to try to help. And one of the groups that I found was Castimonia, and it's a Christian-based 12-step program. It was really, at this point, based out of Houston, which is where I was at the time, and uh, just started meeting with them, trying to do the 90 meetings in 90 days. And then uh, since I was separated out of the house, I said, well, I can start a podcast because I have a microphone and I just like to do something, so I had plenty of spare time. So I started doing podcasts, had a lot of interesting guests on the show, and so it's been really fun for me to do my recovery through podcasts and through learning from others. So that's a really quick nutshell version of of my past and who I am. Sure, and then you said you were were looking at all these different um, avenues, these different 12-step groups. What made you go in that direction to try to find a 12-step group uh, to, to solve this issue? And did you try other things before that? Well, all my life I've tried the stop it technique and that didn't really seem to work. Um, and I've tried the, you know, just to ignore it and hope it goes up, goes away or, you know, ask God to take it away and hope that this time would be different. So I definitely tried that for far too long, far too many years. Um, and then once reco- recovery became very obvious that this was going to need to happen to save my 
my life, my marriage, my kids. Uh, then I started looking at some avenues. First, jumped into counseling. Still continue to do counseling. Think it's a it's a great avenue to be able to do. I mean, at that point in my life, I thought, you know, counseling is for weak people, and counseling is for those that are really messed up. That's not right. me. Um, so I really had to kind of open up my heart to that and see, you know, how I could do. Um, do that and become vulnerable in that situation. Uh, I did celebrate recovery at, at, at the church where I was going at the time. And that was really amazing because people would share their, their hurts and their hangups and then people would applaud. And I was like, wait, why are we clapping? <laughs> and so I started to realize that, wait, just getting it out there is something to be, be praised about. And so putting things in the light really made a difference. And so uh, that's where I started seeking different 12-step programs. And obviously, coming from a Christian background, testimonial worked for me. And it was what I needed that I could call my higher power God because that's that's how I visualize it and that's how I see it. Um, I have nothing against SA or SAA or AA or any of those other groups because uh, I've definitely sat in those chairs, too, and feel like that they all bring healing and, and bring hope. Yeah. For me, when I started dealing with my issues from a 12-step perspective— that was the thing that was the most powerful was that I'm not the only one. Uh, I remember, you know, our group that we had was relatively small. And so we didn't have issue specific groups, but I took uh, what I call my trip to Mecca. And I went down to Saddleback church and went to their Friday night, celebrate recovery. And instead of having 10 or 15 people in the room, there were several hundred and they had three men's groups for sexual addictions with like 15 in each group and and hearing other people talk about these issues that I had only been able to whisper about and they were able to just talk about them in the open was so freeing and it was just so liberating to me to know I wasn't the only person dealing with this and that's when I really thought okay I can this can make a difference in my life because now I can deal with this. I, I don't have to keep it a secret. And that, that was, that's the most amazing thing for me is sitting in those rooms. And, and as I've gone around to different groups around the country and been in different rooms with different people, but it's just the same issue. It, there's a, a sense of community and it, it makes me feel less like giving up because I know I'm not the only one when I'm the only one, it's like, no one can ever fix this. I can never fix this. So it just leads to more of a hopeless feeling on my part. Oh yeah, that's the that's the whole premise behind our podcast is that you know you're not alone, you're not walking alone. And I've talked to several guys that they felt like they were the only one that was looking at pornography. It's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Right. They felt like they're the only ones that were looking at it, or they're the only ones that had this struggle. And so it became this secret sin. And, and you know, I think just realizing that you can talk about it, that it can be out in the open, uh, starts to really make a difference and it, and it takes that secret side out of it, brings light in and then light takes away some of, some of the pain. So what other types of issues does, uh, I mean, Castamonia deals with, with, and, and we'll just tell people what does Castamonia mean? So Castamonia is a Latin word for purity. And so it, like I said, it's a Christian 12 step program. Uh, we'll focus on any type of compulsive sexual behavior or thing that, uh, helps, you know, guide a man towards sexual integrity. Okay. And um, aside from meetings, what other types of things go on with the organization? So it's always a good place to find sponsors, sponsorship, just like you would in AA. So definitely that's a piece 
of what goes on. We try to attach resources to meetings to where guys can find books or guys can find other avenues. Uh, our website has you know our podcasts that are on there. Of course, they're on any kind of podcast venue that you could find. Um, and then we also have a, a guy that journals kind of his recovery and what is that like? And so you can read that journal. Uh, there's just some other resources that are on the website for and being And what able is that to- website? Castimonia.org, and that's spelled C-A-S-T-I-M-O-N-I-A. All right, cool. And you keep on saying guys, um, and I know that uh, pornography tends to be focused more from a male perspective, uh, but do you have women that are involved with uh, Castimonia and with your groups and whatnot? We don't. And we do know that that's a need and a growing need. And so I know that there are some groups that are out there uh, and want to continue to see ways that that can be beneficial. Just the focus of this group really has been on men and, and helping Christian men get out of the darkness with this issue and start and start moving forward. Now, we've been contacted by fair amounts of women and, and spouses and things that listen to the podcast and just say, whenever you say he, I substitute she and we keep moving forward. Um, and, and so I guess it can be beneficial in that way too. Yeah. Yeah. I know that, uh, I think for women that I know that have dealt with this issue, that tends to be part of that alone feeling that they have as well, because it's, um, it's like it, it, when I first started dealing with this, you know, 15, almost 20 years ago, uh, it, you, you weren't really allowed to say that you looked at pornography and you were a Christian, now it's a little bit more like, okay, yeah, we know this happens, but I think we're still for, for females and for the ladies on that, that are struggling with that issue. It's still a lot more of a, I don't want to say taboo, but it's almost like, oh no, you don't struggle with that. That's, mm-hmm. that's not, that's not you. You're, you're okay. Christina is nodding. Any input on that one? No, I've heard it a lot that women struggle in this area and, but it is, Still, I feel taboo as far as the pornography and um, and then obviously the hooking up and the doing that stuff. It's you know sexual addiction is very you know not a cool thing when you're a girl because you're labeled as all the different words you know and it's more acceptable for for men to be the ones out expressing these things. Making feedback. <laughs> it's making feedback. Sorry. <laughs> I talk with my hands, yeah. all right? Um, and so, yeah, I've heard the need, and I think that's one beautiful thing about Celebrate Recovery, which we attend, is that there is an openness there. You know, I've heard not necessarily... I've been to some of the bigger Celebrate Recoveries from where I'm from, and it's a topic that gets addressed a lot, which I'm very happy to hear. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's difficult. And you mentioned the, the hooking up, and I remember... Uh, you know, back when I first got the internet and, you know, found chat rooms. And thankfully, I never went down that avenue with pornography. You know, all the chat room stuff I did was just talking, you know, 24 hours a day about hockey. Um, And I never put it there. And I don't know if it was just a fear of where it would go or it just didn't occur to me or, or what it was. Or I think probably a lot of it also was that it's such a private isolationist uh, addiction that I just wanted no one to know anything about it. I, and, and if I, I guess if I was talking to someone else, I would admit it. How did you get into doing chat rooms and whatnot? I mean, what did it, was it a, a you, cause you mentioned grooming and I'm familiar with the idea of grooming where you're, you know, setting the table for a future meal. 
Um, but how did that progress for you? Yeah, I, it was definitely a progression. Uh, you know, it's Christians love to use the word slippery slope, but it was definitely that. I mean, so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll talk in this chat room and I'll have complete anonymity. And then when I, when I close it, it'll be done and I can go back to my normal persona, my normal life and, and just click it on when I need that buzz or that hit. And, uh, you know, that works for a while, just like, I guess, any drug of choice, it's going to give you the hit you need for a time. But then I thought, well, why not meet in person? And this persona can live in person. And then, then I started to realize that, you know, I can pick up this vibe from people that I'm around that I can tell, okay, she may be vulnerable or she may be a sex addict or she may be this. And so just being able to start having those conversations and I guess the hunt or the chase became that, that drug of choice. And it wasn't, you know, the sex, it was just this, this chase and this game right. uh, that, sa- that sadly I would play. And uh, this thing, it took more and more to get that buzz. Did you choose specific uh, chat rooms to go into for that? Or did you just open up a random chat room? I think it was pretty random. I mean, I would probably look for anything that was sexually explicit or something that was more geared towards that. Um, you know, I wouldn't go in the hockey chat room for lots of reasons. But yeah. I mean, so definitely looking for for where that would would lead to something very quickly into something like that. Yeah. And, and like so many other people, it sounds like you were leading that double life that you're one guy here and you're another guy there. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, yeah. That's a it's a majorly fair assessment. I would you know think everybody would have thought I was a substandard citizen. I had this position of of authority and power in the community, and everybody's like, "Oh, he's a person of integrity," and that was always one of the words people would use first to talk about me. And I was like, "Well, I'm like 98 percent in you know person <laughs> of integrity, but this two percent, which is probably much larger than two percent, but was just taking over my life and growing and growing and growing. Uh, so, but it, it's really hard to keep that." you know, Jekyll and Hyde separated, like there's separate times where they've got to become the same person. Right. Right. And that's, you know, what makes our song of the week so perfect. Um, and I think I'm going to throw it into the song of the week right now. Uh, let them know what, uh, we always let our guests pick a song of the week. And so this is the one that Doug picked for us. Uh, what do you have for the song of the week this week? Yeah, I think that's a great idea that y'all do. I think that's pretty, pretty fun. Uh, so when you ask me, a lot of songs come to mind, you know, there's, there's songs about grace and forgiveness and so many things that that flood through. But, I, you know, I think of this song by Jimmy Needham and, and uh, he's one of my favorite artists and you can look him up and he has a lot of YouTubes where he's talking about his own addiction to pornography when he was younger and trying to move past that. So he's kind of one of those guys that plays in large coffee shops and that kind of thing. And he's got some great albums, but one of his albums is vice and virtue. And it's entitled what we were just talking about, Jekyll and Hyde and really just talking about these, these two opposing forces at play. Excellent. Well, we're going to play this song for you, and we will be back on the other side of the break to uh, talk about it a little bit more and spend a little more time with Doug. So give a listen to this. This is uh, Jimmy Needham, Jekyll and Hyde.
Okay, so that was Jekyll and Hyde by Jimmy Needham. Uh, the thing that really sticks out to me is the line that it was so um, convicting, accusatory almost, uh, where he says, what kind of devil does a thing like that, we joke? Because that was me. I was, I was spending my life pointing at other people because I, I felt like the more I could point elsewhere, no one would look at me. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be so against all this stuff. I would be so above reproach. And so when you suggested this song, I was like, man, this one's going to hurt. <laughs> because it's just really super uh, spot on uh, for me. Yeah, this song definitely has some sting to it. Uh, it's got a good beat. It's something I enjoy. I mean, th- that as well. But as you're starting to listen, it, it does. It has a little sting to it because it was so easy to point that finger and so easy to be pious up on my pedestal. Uh, but then as I started to realize everybody's got this, it's just whether you choose to drink the potion or not. And some people are, they don't drink it, which is awesome. Uh, right. But then some people, you know, they want to kill the fellow down the road, but they, maybe they don't do it, but they want to think about doing it. So we all have some, something in us that's, that's, that's bubbling. That's not of, of a good nature. And so just realizing we need to talk about that. We need to put that on the table. Uh, it's kind of what this song leads me to. Yeah. We, uh, you know, in, in, in looking at recovery, I wouldn't have noticed this probably before I got into recovery, this whole duality of things. I kind of noticed, I remember being in high school. Um, I'm old enough that when I was in high school, we were allowed to smoke on campus in high school. And there was this kid uh, that I went to school with who was really super militant about people smoking. And I remember a person was walking and as their arm swung backward, he grabbed their hand, twisted their arm behind their back, took the cigarette, threw it and stomped on it and said, that was really bugging me. Well, he turned out to be a smoker. And it just thought to me, wow, you were so militant, yet you did it. And I find a lot of times when I meet a person who's super, super, super militant about something, a lot of times it's hiding a secret of theirs. Uh, right. You know, I was really militant about how pure I was and, you know, how chaste I was. And I didn't want, because I was trying to set that that tone of, and it wouldn't be Paul, no way. Because I knew if I ever got caught, and there's a line in the song, it says some of it just, uh, it's just some are caught red-handed and some work up an alibi. I, I got to be on both sides of that picture eventually. Uh, but it was that fear of getting caught red-handed and not having the alibi. See, I've just been so rebellious in your face my whole life that pretty much everything I did was out in the open. You know, when I was drinking, when I was drugging, when I was, you know, sleeping around, it was all in your face because I had to have the control. I wanted you to know that I was screwed up so you couldn't use that against me. So there, was, there wasn't a time where I can look back and be like, oh, that was secret. Like everybody pretty knew my junk was out there. Wow. That, and, and, and I guess we came from different backgrounds. Mm-hmm. You know, I had this, my family went to church uh, and that was the image we portrayed. We went to church, but we didn't live it. I and, did not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we were trying to look good, I guess, all the time. We always wanted to look good. My parents were always concerned with our manners and the image we were projecting. So I've been very image conscious for a lot of my life. Yeah. I haven't been worried about that. Have you not been worried about it or were you portraying that opposite and really trying to accentuate it like 
Oh, yeah, I think the... I was more in your face to try and, you know, prove that it didn't matter what you think. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to be who I, I was no matter what. But I think it was a lot of insecurity that, that led me to that. Were you proving to yourself that you were strong or were you proving to everybody else that you were strong? I don't know. Probably a little bit of both. Yeah. I yeah. definitely, I had to have control. I think it was more of a control issue because of the damage that had been done previously. I want, if I was going to be like this, it wasn't because of my past. It was because I chose to be like this. So was your Jekyll and Hyde then, the Hyde was what everyone saw and the Jekyll was what you kept to yourself and kind of reverse of what most of us do? Probably. Interesting. Yeah. I was always a very, you know, my thing is I was, I'm a feeler. I'm, I'm an external feeler. Everybody gets my feelings, whether they like it or not. Kind <laughs> of. But, um, and so I think it was to hide that softness and that, that love and the compassion that I had. Um, because for so many years, I just grew up in a hard lifestyle. You know, I had, I had so much hardness around me that that's what I thought I was supposed to be. Were you protecting that? Um, I think so. That little girl that got hurt? Probably. Yeah. Probably. I mean, I've got a tattoo on my arm that's a poisonous dart frog. And they're the most, some of the most beautiful creatures, but they're also the most deadly. And so I wore it as a badge of honor that I was beautiful, but I was going to get you. Yeah. And so it's kind of interesting to look back at that and look at how I am now. You know, I'm married in a committed relationship, love my husband. Um, but my past still gets brought up. It was brought up. I was talking to somebody last night who threw it in my face. You know, you're a man eater. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, it, and that brought such guilt on how that I had treated people. And so I still, how do you, how do you deal with that on a day-to-day basis of, of knowing that your history and your past is still out there, but not letting that control who you are today? How does your uh, Jekyll and Hyde portray now, Doug? Um, I think, yeah, it's definitely different. It's interesting how we all have these shells that, that we use to keep people out of our innermost vulnerability of who we are and you know for me it was kind of like like you were saying I had to be perfect and people had to see me as perfect and my family that's what we did everybody else had problems and we were perfect and that's just how we we walked and we were we were great to talk about other people's problems but never would talk <laughs> about our own. Um, and then I've seen it when all of my stuff and all my junk kind of got exploded out in the middle of the street and you know you start seeing who's going to stand with you and who's going to run the other way and then who's also going to be the most mad and what what my wife and i have found that those people that are the most angry and kind of just spewing hatred probably have their own junk that they're hiding and they're just using that as a as a way to to get through that so definitely that's that spoke to me too yeah uh i try to keep my jekyll and hyde to be the same guy now and that's tough but that means like in a work situation if i screw up it just means hey boss i screwed up like Rather than trying to hide it and trying to go find somebody else who can cover it up. And, and if I mess up it at home, I try to just admit that and really work that step 10 of being able to say, hey, you know what? I, I messed up today. Sorry about that. I lost my cool. Um, you know, my wife and I talk about sometimes that, you know, I have character defects. That doesn't mean that I'm still an addict. Those character defects can just be me, me being a jerk. You know, uh, yeah. I don't always use a nice word like jerk, but, um, you know, I definitely have those character defects too but just being able to admit those and say those i think is how we we stay one person instead of being two different people now you've mentioned your wife and your family and pornography is an issue i I remember a lot of people 
who try to argue in favor of pornography tell me, well, it's victimless. You know, it's really not hurting anybody. It's just you. And, and, and I think anybody who has been through what we've been through understands that that is just not the case. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, your wife found out what was going on in your life and how you guys um, dealt with that? Sure. So, you know, I was, I was crafty and thought that, you know, I could get away with anything. And definitely my wife had asked me our entire marriage, which up to this point was you know, 15 years of marriage if I've ever dealt with pornography or had that struggle. And I was like, you know, I think it affects 50% of men and that's not me, you know, so uh, I'm good. And, you know, I just never got caught. Just she never caught any of that aspect of my life. And little things that might happen, I could explain them away as, oh, that must have been a virus or where'd that pop up come from? Or, you know, just all these things that I could explain away and, and use that integrity shell to, for her to go, I guess that's what it was. And so it was just gaslighting going on to where she began to disbelieve everything I would say and start to think she was crazy, you know, and they call sex addiction sometimes the crazy maker on the spouse because it really does do that. Um, but one time she, she picked up my phone and, and she opened up an app that I didn't think she knew I had. And it was a messaging app and she saw some conversations with friends of hers. Um, and so that obviously did not go extremely well. Um, and then from that realized that, you know, I wasn't just having one affair, I was having multiple affairs. And so she was going to leave me and we were separated. And then I got to be a, a nearly 40 year old living with my mom and, and, and doing that and uh, trying to figure out who do I want to be? Like, do I want to be a skirt chaser and, and, and do that? Is that what I want and have no kids and have no wife? Or do I want to, to work on myself? And so, I mean, like a lot of guys, I think I got into recovery to save my marriage and to get my kids back. Uh, but then I, I quickly came to the point where even if my wife was going to leave me, even if I was going to have my kids on every other weekend, I needed a recovery. Right, so yeah. That was a big change. And what does your wife do now in terms of, does she do any kind of recovery work or anything like that? Yeah, I was, I was really fortunate, um, on the marriage side of things because she jumped into recovery with both feet. I mean, she did, um, therapy and jumped in with that and found some groups that were for spouses of sex addicts and, so she was able to do that, and uh, actually, as we moved, she brought those groups to continue to find support with other women that are going through similar things. Uh, and so she leads those groups, and so it's been it's been good. I mean, there's there's hard every day, and yeah. uh, there's there's pain every day, and I think that's the part that I I didn't expect. Uh, I would have thought, okay, I'm done, I'm better. Um, after a few months, it's going to be fine, but uh, no, there's still there's still pain. Yeah, yeah, that that instant fix uh, amazes me because I, I'm thinking of a person that I was in a group with one time, and he came in and he was talking. He heard everyone talking about being codependent, and I remember after about three weeks, he's like, "Yeah, I was codependent, and I I'm I've been healed of my codependency." I was like, "Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Maybe we need to redefine the word." But uh, yeah, I wanted that quick fix, and when when my wife got involved, you know, she was the stereotypical. I'm going to go to support my husband uh, and, and then found out that there were other ladies there dealing with issues similar to what she dealt with. And, and she really didn't think she had issues, you know, cause she led a pretty nice life. But um, 
Yeah, when you were talking about you know making up those lies and 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 explaining things away, I I remember watching a, a TV show that dealt with people who you know started with a premise of a lie and then they had to just keep building on it. And as soon as I watched the first episode, I was like, "This is going to be rough if this show goes many many years because you just have to." Because I just saw my life in it. Like I told that first lie. Then I had to build support around it. And then I had to remember, well, I couldn't tell that lie to this person. I had to tell them something different and hopefully they never come together. And just that that chaos, that pandemonium of, of lies was, uh, that's what really took a lot of physical effect on me. It just, it wore me out mentally and, and emotionally trying to keep those lies in place. Oh, absolutely. It's, it, it's amazing how much brain space I used in trying to keep who did I tell what to, you know, and, and, and who knew what about me and who knew this aspect of who I was? And I felt like I was a chameleon, like I was this person with, with this group or this woman, and I was a different person with this different group. I had my church person, I had my home person, I had my work person, uh, you know, so I could appear to be a partier here, but I could hate partying here. And, you know, it just really depended where I was and that wears you out. Like you realize you're just tired all the time. And because you're you're never who you are supposed to be or who you were created to be, right? Yeah, that's what we were talking about in a recent show, our authentic self. Yeah, uh, that you know what that is, who that is, and and trying to be uh, faithful to that authentic self is really really tricky. I, you know, I was always the computer guy. I grew up around computers. My dad was a a computer scientist in the 60s for the Navy. So, you know, we had computers forever. So I knew a lot more than other people did. So I could cover my tracks. And uh, I remember training my wife and my daughter, look, here's what to look for. This is what covered tracks look like. Here's, I don't want you to see the, 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 the evidence. I want you to see how I'm covering the evidence so I can't do it. And, you know, I had to give away all my secrets. And, and that was a tricky thing. And then I realized that what I was doing was putting all the responsibility on them. You know, I, I wanted them to like, okay, you check me every day. But in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, what can I do around this? Do I give them every secret? Do I, you know, all right, I'll show them how to look, but they don't know about this different browser that I can use. And I remember one time uh, clicking on the wrong picture and it went out into a social media thing. And then I remember putting out immediately, oh, I think my account just got hacked because someone's putting pornography on my account for me. It was like, what an idiot, you know, and it sounds, those lies seem so reasonable. And, and I was telling these lies and, and fooling one person, another person. And I remember getting into the courtroom and thinking, okay, this person has no reason to believe me. All my friends wanted to believe me, but this stranger was like, seriously, really? You, you expect us to believe this line of garbage? And I felt like the little kid with the cookie behind my back thinking no one can see it. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I totally got caught. And honestly, I mean, it was it was the hardest thing in my life getting caught, but it was the best thing that ever happened because otherwise I would still be trying to stack that tower of lies up. And at this point, I would be completely crazy. Yeah. Right. That was yeah, a conversation. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right there, just awkward silence. No, people are processing that. It was good stuff. So, yeah. you know, I, I always tell this story of I was a, I was a young kid. I was home home alone. My older siblings had moved out of the house already, so I'm playing like basketball in the house or doing something you know stupid that a, that a a boy would do. And I broke a lamp, 
And so my mom comes home from the grocery store. I'm literally the only kid home. And she's like, what happened? How'd the lamp get broken? I was like, I don't know. Um, and like, she asked me one more question. I remember just saying, I, I really, I just don't know. And she was like, okay. Um, and then moved on. And I tell that story for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think my family of origin was just that way. Like we're going to, we're going to run from confrontation whenever we see it. But I took away from that, like, Hey, if you, if you believe your lie enough, if you really stand behind it and sound like you're confident in it, people most of the time are going to buy that and believe that. And unfortunately I use that to my disadvantage a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And we learned that from a young age, I, I um, am working on finishing editing a, an autobiography and I looked at things and I didn't see how soon this started. Cause I, you know, when I did my inventory, I went back and I looked at some things, but I can remember being just super young, like, you know, three, four years old and telling stories and seeing that my story combined with a little charm, little smile, little, you know, batting the eyelashes could just make people stop pursuing the issue. And I was playing with matches and, and burnt a hole in the linoleum. There's this big, and I called my dad and said, hey, dad, I think someone broke into the house. He's like, oh, no, what happened? I said, and I think they were playing with matches because there's a hole in the floor that looks like fire. And just these kind of things that I think, and, and then I, because those things, and that one didn't particularly work on dad, but my mom, I could, you know, buffalo her. And it just perpetuated itself to where I felt when I went into the interview room with the police, I was like, I got this. This is easy. I can talk my way out of absolutely anything. And that was so, such a dangerous place to be uh, because it just meant I just could keep on telling those lies. And um, I knew how to control my wife. I knew how to make her feel bad for challenging me. So I would just do that. I would give her a little bit of something at the beginning of a discussion so she felt good. And then I would turn it around where she felt guilty. How could she ever accuse a person of my, you know, saintly status. Um, and, and that's, that was a hard thing in our marriage to then have to work on when I came home. And I remember writing letters to people and saying, you know what? Yeah, I lied to you. I, I'm a big liar. And all of that that you heard was true. And there was also some stuff that you didn't hear that's also true that's probably worse. Um, and that was, that was a difficult thing. But now, I mean, that's the whole basis for my ministry and everything I do now is just being able to, to live on that truth and, and point back to that and, and say, that's not me. And not everyone believes that, you know, and that's, that's okay. I can't make them believe it. Yeah, I think that's, that's huge for me. I love to make people believe me. And, you know, it was really hard for me if people didn't believe me. And I remember with acting out partners or different things, they, they wouldn't believe something that I was lying about. And I would keep lying and tell a bigger story and a bigger story until I could eventually just convince them of the truth. And, and I think now in recovery, that's not my job. My job is to live the truth that I know. And then people see it as that. And, uh, you know, for my wife, there was a long time she couldn't believe words I said because I had gotten so good at lying. I think addicts are, are really good at deception and lying and especially sex addicts. And so, you know, for sex addiction, we don't have a, a blood test. We don't have, uh, you know, a pee in a cup kind of thing. So we use polygraphs. And so that's, uh, you know, that was really a difficult pill to swallow. Like, you need me to do what? Like, and so now that I have those, you know, a couple times a year, that's definitely something that I can hang my hat on and say, see, I am being who I said I would be. And just to start to put something to the words that I'm saying. How long have you been involved uh, 
with your recovery? So I've been in recovery for three and a half years. And so it's the first six months were the most difficult. And since then I've had a lot of success and doing a lot, a lot better. Um, <clears throat> I think early on it was, I wanted to keep too much in my back pocket and say, well, I might need this or I might still need this. Yeah. So I'll just hold on to this little nugget. And then those, those still grow. And I, I think God was gracious to me and said, I'm going to bring those to light very quickly so we don't have more years of, of this growing out of control. And then I started to realize that, yeah, that's just a whirlpool I need to stay away from. Yeah. And how old are your kids? They are all teenagers, 16, 14, and 12. Well, and, not teenagers, almost teenagers. And how much do they know about your story and your ministry? They don't know a whole lot. And so that's really something my wife and I have been wrestling with, is trying to figure out what to tell them and what do they need to know. I mean, obviously they knew we were separated. And at that point they knew you know, I was, I was lying and doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. They knew about some drinking. And uh, they came to know a little bit more about pornography and you know, I think the older ones know a whole lot, but are trying to keep their head in the sand about that. Sure. We're uh, looking for the time to say, you know what, you need to know it all uh, to be able to have a future relationship with me. Um, you know, I think it's a little more difficult because it's sometimes people they knew and, and, and those kind of things. But I think they'll be able to connect the dots and go, oh, that's why we left or that's why, um, you know, we stopped talking with that person or, or all those different things. Um, but I haven't quite figured out exactly how to make that. It's work. a tough one. My, my kids were all older, um, except for the youngest. The youngest was eight when I got arrested and she got shipped off to her mom and didn't know anything. Um, and so then I had to have a really difficult conversation with her when she, you know, was in high school and I got to see her again. Uh, but the kids knew what was going on and they understood it. Uh, but my grandkids now, you know, I've got a, a 10 year old and a 12 year old grandson are the oldest. And so they know that Papa's been to jail. They know that he goes and does stuff in the prison. They don't know why, but I think one of the, my favorite parts of my story is that, that, you know, their mom was my victim, yet they know nothing they know enough to know that Papa was in, in, in jail, but that relationship has been restored so much that I'm just Papa, you know, and I've always just been, oh, that's just Papa. And uh, my daughter and I have had those discussions about, okay, you know, when the book comes out, they're going to read the book and they're going to see some pretty scandalous stuff. So how do we go about that? But we haven't, we haven't come up with that answer yet either. Uh, it's, it's a difficult thing. And I know having my mom come to a church when I'm sharing my testimony that's a little difficult because I'm still just her baby and, and she still blames everyone else for everything I did. Uh, and so that's, it, it can be difficult with, with family, I think. Oh, absolutely. And so my mom knows some, but again, you go back to the nature of what my mom wants to know. Uh, I think she was really wanting to put her fingers in her ears and be la, 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 la. But um, she knows a little bit. So uh, as they grow older, I, I hope that that, can be a part of our story and, and they realize that they don't have to be perfect and that we can all slip and fall pretty big. And there's a, there's a God bigger than that. And there's a family bigger than that. And uh, that we can, we can walk in that. So hopefully it'll be a, something that'll help them live a life that's filled with grace. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a typical thing too. watching, you know, our oldest son 
we watch him go through struggles and, and know that recovery, a recovery lifestyle could help him so much. And we just watch him struggle and continue to struggle. And that's a difficult thing, I think. Uh, and Christina, you have older kids, uh, but also younger kids. You've got a... I do. I've got a wide, wide separation there. Yeah. So my oldest is 22. She is not my birth child, but she is my child by any and all stretches of the imagination. And so she actually does live a recovery lifestyle. She came into my life when I was going into recovery, and I have seen her life change tremendously through CR. And my oldest son is 21, then I have one 16, and then I have a four-year-old. And so my 21 and 16-year-olds were with mom during active, you know, drinking and drugging and, and abusing of men. So they saw mom go through all of that stuff. And I'm fortunate enough that they get to see mom as she is now, too. Whereas my four-year-old just knows me. Mm-hmm. You know, just knows the me that is healthy, that is loving, that is attentive um, without the drugs and, and alcohol. And so it's, it's interesting because I don't know what he'll know. Yeah. And I'm, you're pretty open with your kids about I'm very open stuff. With my kids. Yeah. Yes. Um, because I don't want them to grow into what I was. You know, my oldest one is 21. He is now legal to drink. You know, my daughter, I'm not so much worried about because she's got the tools from from going into recovery herself. But um, my son doesn't. And so being a 21-year-old male, I worry about him. And then my 16-year-old, he's 16. There's all kinds of stuff wrong with that in itself. (laughs) (laughs) But being a 16-year-old boy is tough. And um, I'm very open with him. I ask him difficult questions. And um, I'm very honest with what the world looks like. And it makes him uncomfortable. And I'm okay with that. Because if we're having uncomfortable conversations, at least he's getting input from a healthy standpoint instead of just the input put from the kids at school. Right, right. Yeah, because just because you're not having the uncomfortable conversation doesn't mean the uncomfortable stuff isn't happening oh it's happening yeah i can guarantee it's happening yeah so it's it's my job as a mom to make him uncomfortable sometimes and say hey you know i i know that this is normal for you on this side of the fence but it's my job as your mom to help you see what that leads to in the future and and what the potential for that is um so at least hopefully and as a, a parent i think we all hope that our teachings will stick you know, even if it's just that little pause when they're put in a situation to go, hey, wait, mom said something about this. What was it? You know, and they have to think for a minute. Um, that's what I hope to do. I just hope to be that pause to where they can consider something more than just the situation that's in front of them. Yeah. Yeah. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, man, I'm looking at our time and we have <laughs> we have burned up a lot of bites on this uh, on this podcast. Uh, people are trying to get off the, the treadmill somewhere in a gym right now. If, if that's you, raise your hand um, and look around for those hand raises. Just don't you fall. Know, we did that the other a couple of weeks ago. We, I said, you know, if you love Christina, raise your hand. And we were listening to the podcast driving home. My wife and I, we both raised our hand as I'm driving. And I, I did keep one wheel on the their hand, hand on the, on the wheel, wheel out, so that was Thankfully. good. Um, just a couple of things for uh, for the people who are listening. Doug, tell us again how to get to your uh, your website, your podcast. So if you go to castimonia.org, again, that's spelled C-A-S-T-I-M-O-N-I-A, you can get to our podcast and our resources. There's some definite things there to be, am I even a sex addict? There's a quiz for that. 
Uh, we don't have an app for that. We do have a quiz for that, though. So, um, you know, you can, you can check that out and see. Uh, we have some resources there, some books that we commonly refer people to as, uh, you know, maybe you want to read this first and jump off into this pool in this direction. Uh, and so that's really the, the place that has our telemeeting information. So we have telemeetings for people that if you can't make a regular meeting because you're just not in an area where we have one, we have a couple times a week you can jump on an hour-long telemeeting. Uh, which are great. They're a great way to start to see, is this for me? Is this what I want to do? Or maybe you're in a place where you just don't have recovery meetings. You can do that. And I know other groups have those as well. Uh, we have our meeting list there so you can see if there's one in your area. Um, but yeah, that website, castimonia.org, is really a, a good first stop. And are there email links on that uh, website or do you have an email if people want to get a hold of you and get more information? Sure. You can email me at puritypodcast at castimonia.org. Uh, and again, that's the funky spelling of C-A-S-T-I-M-O-N-I-A. So puritypodcast at castimonia.org. And that comes to, to me. And then I have a frequent guest, George, that also uh, looks at those emails. So we are able to get back to you pretty quick. Outstanding. And on our end here, uh, for uh, Mess It Up, uh, if people want to get a hold of me, it's bowtieguy at messituppodcast.com. If you want to get a hold of me, it's bikerchick at messituppodcast.com. And uh, going on the islands to intern Dave is info at messituppodcast.com. If you would like to support the podcast, if you go to messituppodcast.com and go down to the little button that says become a patron for as little as a dollar a week, a month, a little as a dollar a month, you can support the podcast. And um, we have different ways of giving uh, so that you can financially support the podcast as well. And uh, pretty soon, um, you know, in the next month or so here, we're going to have the book ready. And uh, Patreon members will be able to get early access to the book in print and audio version. So um, look forward to that. Anything else we've got? Nope. Doug, you got anything else? I don't have anything else. Just thanks for y'all's time. Sorry that uh, we ended up talking so long. Hopefully people stuck it out this long. Oh, I'm sure they will. It'll be great. And that we just gave them an extra workout. So, right. uh, And if you're, if you're late to work, push pause right now. When you go and give this to your boss, boss, your person was listening to a very important podcast, and that's why they're late to work. We apologize. Please email us at I'm sorry at oops.com. Uh, so uh, we will see you guys next time we mess it up. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for checking out the Mess It Up podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email info at messituppodcast.com. Don't forget to share with your friends, and we'll see you next time we mess it up. Mess it up.